0: Well, congratulations, those of you who have been with us for 11 months, today marks the end of our Acts sermon series. It's taken us 11 months to get through, and for those of you who are like, oh, Brian, this is our first day, or we just started, let me do a little recap of the book of Acts for you. See, it all all began with a guy named Luke. He was a Greek physician, and he wrote a letter. He wrote a letter to a, a prominent politician named Theophilus. He actually wrote two letters. He wrote the gospel of Luke and then he wrote the book of Acts. The book of Acts is part two of Luke's letters to Theophilus and his purpose was simple to get Theophilus and other readers to imagine what would happen if they all, if the God of all creation built his kingdom on earth as it was in heaven. His letter was built to get us to imagine, to dream about, to get a confidence in. And ask the question, what do we think would happen if the God of all creation filled his people with purpose and unified them together? What would happen if the God of all creation filled his people with his power? What do we we expect would happen if the power of God descended on earth That was Luke's purpose of Acts. It really began in the first chapter in Acts 1-8. If you want to understand the book of Acts, you have to understand this passage. Acts 1-8, this is what Jesus said to his disciples right before he ascended into heaven. He said, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you'll be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and Judea, Samaria, and even to the remotest parts of the earth. Man, we spend so much time arguing about the purpose of the Holy Spirit, what it does in our lives and how it should be worked through our lives. And we forget about this passage. It says you're going to have power. Why? So you can be my witnesses. In Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria the remotest parts of the earth after that promise we saw that promise come to happen as the people of god were gathered together in an upper room suddenly the presence of god filled that room and then it exploded into equal pieces and a piece resting on each individual's head signifying this isn't a movement of superstars this isn't a movement of christian excellence It's a movement of individuals, all empowered by God to play their part in being a witness. After that time, the power of God spread into Jerusalem and Judea, and we witnessed incredible things happen. Lives were transformed. People were repenting of their sins. They were aligning their lives with Christ. There was unity. There was joy. There was celebration. There was transformation. People were selling everything and giving it to people who didn't have enough. There was boldness. There is a miraculous nature of this ministry that people looked at it and they couldn't explain it away. Everything seemed to be going just as everyone would imagine they would happen if the power of God descended on earth. But then Stephen, a leader within the church, was, was martyred for his faith And on that day, great persecution happened where Christians were being hunted down and pursued. And all of a sudden, we begin to worry, maybe this is the end. How could a young movement, how could a a small group of people withstand such pressure? But then we're reminded of something great when we saw this passage Acts chapter 8 where Luke said, therefore, those who had been scattered went about preaching the word as people just scattered because of that persecution. They continued to be a witness of the glory of God in the midst of their struggle, in the midst of their hardship, in the midst of their persecution, in the midst of their trials, they continued to be witnesses. And we saw the kingdom of God spread into the region of Samaria and it began his trek around the globe with the transformation of the Ethiopian official. There's another notable part of that day. Not only did we gain wind of this movement of persecution, but there is another character introduced to the story, his name's Saul. He was a Jew of Jews, Pharisee of Pharisees. He was educated in the best schools. He was empowered by the chief officials. But the powerful part of this story is that Jesus didn't annihilate this man with his omnipotent power. That would be too easy. When Jesus came face to face with Saul on that Damascus road, he didn't judge him. He didn't destroy him. He transformed him. He saved him. And he transformed that persecutor of believers Into a champion of God that we would follow for the remainder of the book of Acts. And we saw God do incredible things through Paul. We saw him go on three missionary journeys. On those missionary journeys, we saw him impact and save thousands and start hundreds of churches. And we witnessed Paul remain faithful in the midst of the harshest of circumstances. Paul never let go. Paul never quit. Paul never stopped. In fact, I love how he summarized his heart in this passage, 2 Corinthians. Look what he says. He says this, five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. Night and day I've spent in the deep I have been on frequent journeys and dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. He continues, he says this, I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights and hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. We read that, that list and we say, no thanks. I can't do it. We begin to ask, how did Paul make it? In the midst of all that struggle, how did Paul remain faithful? I mean, we worry about kooky California. Look at that list. And we wrestled, and we thought, how can Paul make it? But he answered it in the next verses. He said this, apart from such external things, there is the daily pressure of me for concern for all the churches. Who is weak without me being weak? Who is led into sin without my intense concern? Paul said, do you want to know how I made it through? my love for the church and my commitment to the gospel. Paul said, that's what what empowered me to go through. Man, I worry about you. And I worry about everyone else who is still lost in the depths of their sin. Paul said, no matter what happens as I move forward, I'm committed to those two things. They empower me to move forward. The last chapter of this great letter are filled with Paul's extended journey to Rome. It was filled with false accusations, false imprisonment by corrupt officials. But through it all, Paul continued to profess his faith in God. He continued to be ready for every opportunity. To make his defense, but with gentleness and reverence. And that's really how the book ends, right? It's like the book of Acts ends somewhat abruptly... And it finishes this way, Acts 28. Let me just read it for you. Acts 28, verse 30, it says this, and he stayed two full years in his own rented quarters and was welcoming all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God, teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with all openness, the last word of Acts, unhindered. Unhindered. The phrase unhindered describing how the gospel continued to go freely without restriction, no holds barred. It was going gangbusters at the end of Acts. After all that was going on in the midst of this ministry, when everything was finished in his life, the gospel continued to move forward unhindered, unhindered, without restriction, no holds barred. It was going gangbusters. What began in Acts 1-8... We're still moving forward in 100% power and movement. I love what Charles, Charles Spurgeon, a late preacher, said about it. He said, what was begun with so much heroism and ought to be continued with ardent zeal. Since we're assured that the same Lord is mighty still to carry on his heavenly designs. What God began in Acts, I truly believe, continues in us. See, the book of Acts ends so abruptly for two reasons. Number one, as Luke is writing this letter, this is as far as as Paul's life took him. When Acts was finished, this is as far as he got with Paul. But it also infers that what God began in Acts continues on. That's what I and other pastors call Acts 29. So for those of you who have been looking through your Bibles wondering if you have the wrong one, <laughs> Acts 28 is a testimony of Luke about the life of Paul. Acts 29 is a testimony of yours about the life of Jesus. Acts 28 is the end of Luke's testimony about Paul. Acts 29 is the beginning of your testimony about Jesus. That's how I wanted to end our series. If that's true... If the ministry of Acts is supposed to be continuing in our lives, if what we witness in Acts is still supposed to be at work, I mean, if the power of God that was at work in Acts is still at work in our lives, what should that look like for us today? What is our part in it? Shipwrecks, stonings, vipers. What does God have in store for you and for me? What does God expect? What does Paul think? about our lives today. Well, as Gary mentioned last week, the end of Acts describes Paul being still in house arrest, under house arrest for two years. And during those two years, he wrote what we know as the prison epistles, a series of letters to Christians focused on empowering and exhorting them to continue the ministry of Acts in their lives One of those letters, the book of uh, Philippians. That's where I'd like to invite you to join me. Philippians chapter 2. If you're already in Acts, after all these months, your Bible should just open automatically to that book. Just flip a couple books to the right. Find the little book of Philippians. Philippians. In the first part of Philippians chapter 2, Paul gives this great example of Christ. He says, let let this attitude be in your life. In other words, he said, let Jesus be an example who existed in heaven, but didn't see that as something to be held on to. He emptied himself. He let it go for a time so he can come and take on the form of his own creation. Not so he can rule over them, so that he can die for them. And not just any death. Death on the cross, the most horrific and humiliating form of death known at that time. He endured all of that in confidence that God would do a work. That God would lift his name above every other name and that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. But right after that, right after giving us the model of Christ, Paul goes into verse 12, and he says, so then. If we're to have that same type of attitude, if we're to have that same type of commitment, what does it look like for us? And Paul goes into a few verses to give us four characteristics, four standards, four attributes that ought to define our lives. If we want to continue to see the power of Acts work through our culture, through our families, in the midst of our church, Paul says there's four things that are required. They are just necessary, pertinent to our life. Look at how he starts, verse 12, Philippians chapter two, verse 12. He says this, so then my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, he says this, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. A term work out It's it's an imperative. It's a directive. It's a command. Paul says, listen, if you want to see the reality of God in your life, if you want to see this aspect of the ministry of God, Acts 1 continuing in your church, in your homes, in your life. First thing he says, work out your faith. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. In other words, live with sincerity. You need to work out your salvation. That term, work out, means to complete it, make it happen, be sure to produce it. And when you hear that, you might be saying, okay, time out, Brian, I thought Jesus completed salvation. I thought salvation was by grace and faith alone and that it's not based on my works, and you're right, in part. See, in America, we've just cheapened this work of salvation, into one part known as justification. This is the definition of justification. It's the act of God that declares a sinner righteous on the merit of Christ's sacrifice. This is what Jesus accomplished for us, the result of his death and resurrection, where he came and saved us from the consequences of our sin. He paid our penalty. He handled the debt that we have in our life. But the power of salvation doesn't stop there. See, the Bible says that once we're justified, it gives gives rise, it begins a new movement of sanctification. Sanctification is a progressive work of God and man that makes us more and more free from sin and like Christ in our daily lives. Once Jesus pays the penalty for your sin, something new begins in you. Your life changes The way you think is transformed. The way you live is different. That's why some of you, you might know someone who who seems to reflect Jesus in a different way than you do. And you're both Christians, yet they can forgive more freely than you. You look at other Christians who who can have peace in the midst of hardship, or you can't. There's Christians who live in a kooky culture and lose their minds when there's others who live in the midst of a kooky culture and still have hope. And you wonder, what do they have that I don't? Sanctification, that's why Grandpa reflected Jesus in a way that I didn't when he died. Perhaps never will. It's not because Jesus loved him more than me. Because Grandpa worked at it for longer than me. That's what Paul is saying. If you want to see the work of Acts happen in your life and in your home and through your church, we got to do more than just show up and sing songs. He says, work out your salvation, purify your life, rid your life of more and more sin, and fill yourself with more and more of the characteristics of Christ. Live with sincerity, pursue purity. Why? Verse 13. For, because it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And, Brian, why, why do we have to go through all that work? Why do we have to work so hard on our own life? Why, once we receive justification, do we have to keep living our life and allowing God to transform our lives little by little so we reflect Christ more and more because God's at work in you. He's doing his part. But it requires us to do ours. Got me to thinking this week. What's one way you need to take a step in living with sincerity? One of those pesky sins that always continues to impact your soul. Greed, anger, lust, discontentment. And Paul says, listen, if you want to continue to see the work of Acts, first thing you need to do live with sincerity, work on your sanctification, get serious about developing the characteristics of Jesus in your daily life. But he continues. So number one, live with sincerity. And he says this, number two, live with purity. Live with sincerity, he says it, verse 14. This one's gonna sting and I apologize ahead of time. He says, do all things, and if you're one who writes in your Bible, circle that, because that's a real important word, phrase. The term do, it's another command. It's a second directive of Paul. Listen, if you want to see the work of God continue in your heart, in your life, through your church and transform your community, number one, live with sincerity, number two, please do all things. Do is a command. Just do it. Quit whining about it. Quit complaining about it. Just do it. By the way, I looked up all things just to be sure. It doesn't mean some things. It doesn't mean most things. It doesn't mean easy things. It doesn't mean Republican things. It doesn't mean comfortable things. It means all things. All things. Every kind of thing. The whole kit and caboodle. Look what he says. Do all things, again, it's not a request, it's a directive. Man, if you want to see the work of God at work, if we want to see this ministry of Paul continue in our lives, do all things, and here it is, without grumbling. A Greek word, grumbling. It's used to describe those things we say under our breath. It's a sound we make when we're exasperated. The mumblings we say under our breath. Not wanting people to hear what we say, but wanting them to know we're discontent. Paul says, Do everything, all things, every kind of things, hulk and caboodle. It doesn't matter where you live, where Jesus lives in Texas, or where Satan lives in California, do everything without grumbling. Quit whining about everything. That's what Paul says. You want to see the work of God in action? We read about the book of Acts, and we think, man, that was the good old days. I wish God would do stuff like that. Paul's like, well, I wish you'd behave like me. Quit grumbling. Do everything without grumbling. Here's another one. Or disputing. Quit arguing about everything. Quit debating everything. Quit making everything so hard. That's what Paul's saying. You want to see the work of God continue. First, work on your sanctification. Live with sincerity. But number two, live with purity. Quit whining, complaining, and moaning, and groaning about everything. Can you imagine if Christians did that? Facebook would go bankrupt. If people quit arguing or whining about the government, some pastors would have nothing to preach about. (laughs) What do you grumble about? What do you complain about in your life? Government? Gas prices? Your marriage? Anyone ever complain about their what their wife or husband doesn't do the way you wish they would? What if we didn't complain about them? What if we move forward in confidence that God blessed us with them? And empower a powerful aspect of our lives. What else you complain about? Culture? public education, traffic. Paul says, listen, you want to see the movement of God. Paul's writing this to Christians, by the way. It's one of the best churches of this time. And Paul's writing from imprisonment in his house where the gospel is moving forward unhindered. Some of the best work of the gospel happened without Paul. because Christians began to do this. Live with sincerity. Live with purity. Do everything without grumbling or disputing. Quit whining about everything and quit arguing about everything. And just in case you're wondering, well, Brian, what would I do with all of my time? He answers that. Just in case you're like, well, Brian, I don't know what else to do. If I didn't argue, I wouldn't know what to do. Here you go so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless, innocent, children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom appear as lights in the world. Paul says, quit arguing and whining, and instead start proving yourself. Start proving yourself to be blameless, innocent. I love this term, above reproach. I mean, you're living in such a way that people can't even make things up about you because people won't even believe it. You know, by the way, that's one of the standards of our staff, of our leadership of this church. How we deal with finances, how we deal with personnel, how we deal with our children and our youth. We want to do things in a way that's above reproach. Man, if anyone comes after this church, our heart's desire is that it's because of something we said about the gospel, not because of how we did our ministry. Paul says, prove yourselves to be above approach. That term prove means to bring to existence, work hard to become like this, generate these traits in your life. Paul's talking to Christians, man, if we want to see acts continue, we want to see transformation happen. We've got to quit talking about it, whining about it, complaining about it, and start proving it in your life. You don't get to claim Christ and complain about culture. Reflect Jesus in the midst of it. You don't get to claim Christ and live your life enslaved to sin. You don't get to do it. It discredits the work of Christ, it discredits the testimony of others. Live with sincerity, live with purity. You don't get to claim Christ and live a life of vengeance and anger and division. Paul says you don't get to do it. Quit complaining and start proving. Man, if we truly believe that in eternity, all peoples, all nations, all tribes, all languages exist to worship God together for all eternity in heaven... My God, we got to start seeing it here. There's only one place. The power of God brings everyone together. That's his body. Man, Paul's emphasis, the end of Acts, Acts ends the way it does because the work of God didn't end with Paul. It's meant to continue with us. And Paul spent the last number of years of his life empowering and exhorting Christians to do just that. If we want to see God work, have this attitude yourself that existed in Jesus who put everything aside and focused on the gospel. He devoted his life to it in confidence that God would do a work in the same way you do that too, Paul says. And he says, here's what it looks like. Live with sincerity. Work out your salvation. Focus on reflecting more and more of Christ in your daily life. Live with purity. We can't preach Christ and then live like hell Monday through Saturday. We can't. We need to do it differently. So just as we look at Paul to where we're amazed at the peace of God that surpasses understanding that filled his life in the midst of hardship, the rest of the world would have that too. And then Peter says, and then be ready to always have a response for the hope that's in you. Man, when everything's going crazy and people say, how are you surviving? How can you be faithful to God in the midst of this? Be ready to have a response for the hope that's in you with gentleness and reverence. And Paul says, listen, this is important because you are the light of the world, he says at the end of verse 15. You're the light of the world. Draws our attention to what Jesus said in Matthew 5. The Sermon of the Mount said this, you're the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, It gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine then before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Man, we want to see Jesus work today like he did back then. I got to tell you, it's not just based on the pastor, it's based on us living a life of sincerity, and purity, recognizing the importance of our daily lives as God places us in a position to be viewed by the world, that they're in awe by the reflection of God that comes from our lives, from our homes, from our marriage, from our church. So it's hard to do. I don't think this is new for many of us. If you're like me, you could be fired up for a day or two, a week or two, a month or two. But then we get distracted by the storms of life. We get distracted by the struggles of culture. We get distracted by the needs of our own home. That's why Paul gives us the third step, third characteristic, third thing, man, if we want to see acts continue, number one, live with sincerity, number two, live with purity, number three, live with commitment. Look what he said. He gives us great. Here's how you do it. Number 16, holding fast the word of life. So that in the day of Christ, I will have reason of glory because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. He says, holding fast the word of life, a term word of life, it's this term used in scripture to encapsulate the work of God. What he began in creation and is going to complete in revelation. It's that work he began in you that he will be faithful to complete it. It's that power of God. His work in you. It's that presence of God. Even though you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, God's with you. says, if you want to continue to see the work of Acts, the work of God happen, now, like, in, like an axe, and I'm not saying magic hankies falling out of your pocket and healing grandma. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking an entire godless city transformed in the image of Jesus. I'm talking about a setting where people from all tribes and nations could come together in unity like nowhere else. The United Nations has nothing on the church. If you want to see that, live a commitment. He says, hold fast to the word of life. Hold fast. That phrase, that term, hold fast. Grab it firmly. Hold on to it with both arms and both legs. Hold on for dear life. Man, if you want to make it through, if you want to live a life like Paul, you want to be able to reflect Christ in the midst of the darkest times and see incredible things happen, Paul says, hold firm. Hold fast, grab on, both arms, both legs. When I was a much younger pastor, my son Andrew, he's now over 6'2", he doesn't do this anymore, but he used to. When I'd leave, and he wouldn't want me to leave, he'd sit on my foot, wrap his arms and his legs around my, my leg and make me drag him to the door and Gretchen pry him off Every time I hear that term, hold fast, that's the image that comes to my mind. Man, that's what you hold on to. The God's at work. The God is still in the midst of it. That's what got David going. That's what empowered Paul and Peter and John. The greats of the faith were able to hold on to this confidence that God was at work. If we want to see God work in our lives, live with sincerity, live with purity, live with commitment. I was thinking recently a psalm that King David wrote, Psalm 27. You know, King David was in a midst of, he was in a number of just precarious places in his life. He was pursued by a rival king. The Philistines were always after him. His own son was after him at a time. Look at what he said Psalm 27. He said, I would have despaired. I would have come unglued. I would have given up. Unless I believe that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. I might have given up in Kookie, California. It's nuts out here. Unless I believe that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Paul's direction: wait for the Lord. Be strong. Let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Can I ask you, what are you thinking of giving up? Have you given up in your marriage, given up in culture, given up on church, given up on someone, given up on ministry, given up on some aspect of faith in God? Where are you ready to mail it in And Paul says, if if we truly want to see that ministry of God at work that transforms entire cities and unifies people, we need to live with commitment. Hold fast. Man, Man will fail you. Pastors will fail you. Governments will fail you. Stock markets will fail you. God will never fail you. Hold fast to the work of God. Believe that even in the hard things, God works everything together for his glory and your growth. One last thing I want to share with you, though. Paul says, live with sincerity. Live with purity. Live with commitment. Here's the last one. Verse 17 said but even if I'm being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith even though things hey if things don't work out for me the way I hope he says I rejoice and share my joy with you even though I'm in house arrest and I don't know how this is going to end now we know historically after this first trial before Nero's court, he gets released. He serves for a couple number of years, and then he comes back and gets tried by Nero personally and executed at that point. We know at some point Paul is martyred for his faith. Paul says, I don't know when that's gonna happen, even if it happens now. I rejoice. I share my joy with you. That term rejoice, by the way. I'm cheerful, I'm happy, I'm glad, I'm content, I'm fulfilled. even if things are going to go bad for me, Paul says, I don't care. I'm set. And then look what he says for you. He says, you too. That same heart that's in me, Paul says, you too. And then look what he says, I urge you. I'm begging you. I'm on my knees. Rejoice in the same way. And share your joy with me. Rejoice, be cheerful, be happy, be glad. I know some of you are in the midst of storms, some of you are in the midst of hardship, some of you are struggling through loss. Paul says you want to see the work of God continue in your life, in your home, in your church, transforming your community. Let's turn our frowns upside down, huh? And sometimes the grumpiest people I ever meet are Christians. Anyone ever meet a grumpy Christian? We're all snickering. We're looking at our neighbor, probably. But I urge you, I'm begging you, rejoice in the same way, even when things are hard. Celebrate the work of God in your life and the lives of people around you. Brian, how do you do that? I believe Paul gives us the answer. By the way, number four, live with joy. Fourth step, live with joy. Look how Paul says to do it. Philippians 4. I've shared it with you often. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. There's that term again, same term. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I'll say it, rejoice. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near, and here it is. Be anxious for nothing. Brian, how do I rejoice? Things are crazy. Relax. And everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And look at the result of that step. And the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension will guard your heart and your minds in Christ Jesus. And a peace of God that's beyond human comprehension. I know I meet with a number of people saying, Brian, I don't have peace. I'm missing the peace of God. And I keep going back, well, did you do the first part? Like we're all proclaiming the second part. Did you do the first Be anxious for nothing and everything by prayer and supplication. Let your request be made known to God. Lay it at the feet of Jesus. I'm convinced God's not finished. I'm convinced the purpose of the book of Acts is not just to give us a history of what Jesus did back then. But it's to get us to imagine of what God can still do today. but it's going to take us to take a step. I guess my question for you is what's one step that you can take this week? Maybe you need to live with sincerity. Maybe you need to live in a way that you're focused on your growth, your sanctification, your Christ-likeness. Maybe you, need, maybe you need to live with purity. Quit grumbling about kooky California. Stop trying to find the time. God, please, when do I get to move to Texas? <laughs> Instead, maybe we start proving our faith here. I mean, if God created everything out of nothing, why do we think that it's hopeless here? Maybe rethink your marriage. Maybe rethink your neighbor. Maybe it's time to quit gumb- grumbling and start proving your faith in your life. Maybe, maybe you need to live with commitment. Maybe you're here like, Brian, I'm just ready to pack it in. I'm done, I'm through. Maybe it's because you're holding on to the wrong thing. Holding on to the economy or, or a political party or some aspect of of what your life should look like instead of the word of life, instead of the truth that God is at work in you. Regardless of how crazy it is in your life, God is at work in you. Hold on to that. Push through, carry on. Remember the most notable promise, one of the promises given most often by God is I will be with you. Even though you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, David says, I fear no evil. Why? God's there. Jesus getting ready to ascend into heaven. The disciples are like, oh, I don't know if I like this. Jesus says, I'll be with you even to the end of the age. Joshua inherits all of the problems of Israel after Moses dies, filling the feet one of the greatest leaders of God in the Old Testament times. It's Joshua is sitting there getting buried by the weight. God says, Joshua, relax, I'm with you. Where do you need to pursue? Push through, live with commitment to the Lord through the hard times in your life. Or maybe it's time to choose to have joy. Quit criticizing, quit complaining. And just celebrate the work that God has done in your life and is still doing in your life and through your life. One step that you can take in expectation that what God did in Acts, he can continue in us. Let's pray. God, we're here. God, many of us are here because we believe in our heart that you're alive and at work. God, we have experienced it in our life, but God, we confess to you. There are times we get distracted or overwhelmed. We begin to wonder if you've abandoned us. We begin to struggle in the fear and the storms of our life. So God, I pray for those people God, give us the faith that you gave Paul God, give us the confidence that you gave him help us to live a life of purity and sincerity and commitment and joy God, fill us with those things God, that we might bring you more glory together, God, for those people who are here still looking for you God, they wish that they could see you the way that people saw you back then. God, I pray you open their eyes and allow them to see you as I do. God, through your spirit, give them faith and confidence and humility as they just lift their burdens and their needs and their failures to you. God, may you do in their life what you've promised you would do, what you've done in mine. God, may you free them from their guilt and their shame. May you fill them with with your spirit and then lead them in the paths of righteousness for your name's sake. God, transform their life starting today. And may you give them a peace that's beyond human comprehension as they entrust their life into your hands. God, we're here because we pray as you've taught us. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God, we're done fighting about our kingdoms. Help us be about your kingdom and your will. God, give us what we need and help us be content with what you give. God, we do pray that you continue to forgive us our failures of this week. God, we commit to you that we're going to work hard to forgive those who have failed us this last week. God, we ask, don't lead us in temptation, but instead deliver us from evil. God, protect us from doing something foolish that would jeopardize our homes, our families, our ministry, and your reputation. God, this is our prayer because we believe that yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.